Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I'm honored to have joined with me on this panel, attorney Anna Stepanova and Joel Yanovich, uh, both of whom will discuss, along with myself, uh, the different options that are available besides the standard H1, L1, and F1s that you think of for IT technology consultants for your companies. Uh, and generally, we pick one single area where we focus on a particular topic, but this time, since we want to talk about other non-immigrant options available for employees, we thought that uh, it'll be helpful to do a quick overview of three or four or five different possible options. Now, again, remember, none of these might work perfectly or work at all, but at least it's worth understanding that these are the kinds of options that might be out and there and available depending on your particular situation, your company, your background, your employee, and all that good stuff. So as the saying goes, we'll go a mile wide and an inch deep, which means we will not be able to get into great nuances, though we will try to do so. The first one that we often talk about, which is very similar to the H-1B and used almost maybe as much, if not more, than the H-1 or even the L-1, um, is the TN, which is under the Trade NAFTA Agreement or the North American Free Trade Agreement. Now, of course, President Trump is talking about possibly modifying, eliminating, God knows doing what with NAFTA. But at least as of today, as of now, in December of 2017, we pretty much still have it on the books until somebody changes it and Congress, I guess, removes it or the executive does something crazy, uh, where we have TN, uh, NAFTA TN, which is trade NAFTA category status for a person who's from Canada or Mexico. So I'm going to ask you, Joel, tell me, t can you share with our audience a little more details about the TN? Sure. And I, I want to start off with saying, as Sheila mentioned, you have to be a citizen of Canada or Mexico. This is different than in the employment-based or in general, the green card categories where you have to be born in a particular country. Here, if you are born in one country but then become a citizen of Canada or Mexico, um, you, you could potentially be eligible. And that really applies for virtually all of the non-immigrant categories where there's they are country-specific. So in any case, um, for TN, in addition to having to be Canadian or Mexican, you are going to have to be coming in a professional position. It has to be one of the professional positions specified in the regulations. So the list of qualifying professions, and this is different than a, uh, you, you, maybe not the same job title, but the profession, the general profession, the list of qualifying professions is very long. Um, I'm just going to list kind of uh, a few of the notable examples, uh, accountants, doctors, registered nurses, pharmacists, um, all manner of scientists university professors, hotel managers, computer system analysts, and engineers, and that does include software engineers. Um, for a vast majority of these professions, you usually need to have a college degree in a related field to qualify. You, you can't qualify just based on experience um, or a combination of education and experience. You need that degree. 
One notable exception to that is the position of management consultant. And for that, you can qualify based on having a degree of at least five years or having relevant experience. You, you want to talk a little bit about that, Anna? Yes. A very important uh, point here with regard to management consultants is that there is a lot of scrutiny on the part of immigration officers with regard to this particular position. The position must be temporary, uh, and it cannot be used to fill an existing opening, replacing someone in an existing position, or filling a newly created permanent position. But as I said, you know there is a lot of scrutiny. If you are using management consultant as your position for uh, a TN classification, uh, beware. You have to be really, really un- understanding what exactly you're applying for and what it entails. Um, Another point that uh, I want to bring up is that uh, a petition may be filed with USCIS. And um, if you are used to filing H-1B petitions, that's pretty much the only way that you can get uh, an approval for the H-1B classification. However, with regard to a TN position, these cases are typically filed for Canadians directly at the port of entry because they don't have to have a a visa and they're visa exempt. Uh, For Mexicans, however, the application should be filed at um, a U.S. embassy or consulate abroad. And uh, it's important to understand that if you do get an approved petition, TN petition by USCIS, uh, when your employee travels next time uh, abroad, they will have to apply again. And that's going to be a de novo review uh, again, you know, by the consulate. Uh, so they, they will not defer to the approval Uh, previous approval by USCS typically. Also, um, you need to understand that self-employment is not permitted. This is an employer-based petition. Uh, However, a person may be sponsored by a Canadian company, for example, to perform work for a U.S. company here. In that situation, the sponsored worker may be an owner of the Canadian company. Important point, something that you may keep in the back of your mind, maybe somewhere you will uh, use that. Uh, TN status uh, is typically granted for uh, three years initially, and it could be extended in three-year increments, which makes it very, um, very appealing um, to a lot of people because it could continue indefinitely. Uh, So uh, TN... Uh, those TN employees who come to the U.S. may bring their family members, and uh, those family members should qualify for TD status. How, however, generally, they will not be allowed to work. Right. The TD is the trade-dependent visa. Right. And again, as we all pointed out, this is for citizens of Canada. So if your employee is a citizen of Canada rather than the H-1 or the uh, L-1, which certainly are options also available, the L-1 especially, uh, the H-1, of course, is the quota and the cap in most cases. Uh, look at the TN at least as a possible option for your employees. Or Again, Mexico. just to be, or Mexicans, but the Mexicans then have to go through that additional right. hoop that Canadians don't need to go. And as as I think Joel might have said, but it was seemed like we kind of, it was either you can, for the, only the management consultant, for all the others, you need the degree, except for a management consultant, you can qualify either based on a degree or at least five years of relevant work experience, though we kind of said maybe it's a little of both or whatever, but I think that's what we meant to say and just want to be clear about that. 
So next, after the TN, we want you to look at the E1, E2, treaty trader and treaty investor category. The E1 is a treaty trader, E2 is a treaty investor, which allows select foreign nationals to work in the United States for either a U.S. company based on substantial investment or that they are overseeing the investment or to work either in a supervisory, executive, or essential skills position for a qualifying employer. Generally, these classifications would work well for like large established companies, but it can also certainly be utilized by entrepreneurs looking to build their own startups in the United States. And I know some like, was it BPE that had like their employees from different countries? It can't be from India because India doesn't have a treaty of trade or commerce with the United States, unfortunately. But for example, an Indian citizen who has become a citizen of Canada or become a citizen of the United Kingdom or of Australia, et cetera, et cetera, can always qualify for this kind. And we go through those hoops. But we've seen people who set up little like gas stations that actually do it under the E1, E2 treaty trader, treaty investor. And so we'll get a little bit into the details. So, Joel, let me have you go into some of the details about what might be required. Sure. And yes, as Sheila mentioned, you do have to be for either either one or E2, you have to be a citizen of a country that has a qualifying treaty. Um, some countries have a treaty for one. Some countries have a treaty for the for E1. Some have a treaty for E2. Most countries that have these treaties have treaties for both E1 and E2. Um, the list of countries is very long. It's going to range from Japan and Australia, most European countries. There are also some less obvious nations. Uh, Iran and Pakistan and even Taiwan all have uh, qualifying treaties. Um, unfortunately, at this time, some of the countries that would most need this, such as India uh, and mainland China, do not have qualifying treaties. So, if that is your only, those are your only countries of citizenship, either one of those or some of the other countries, um, you're, you're unfortunately not going to qualify. So very briefly, the E1 category uh, is reserved for treaty traders. Uh, to qualify, you have to engage in what's uh, quote unquote substantial trade between the treaty country and the U.S. Substantial is not defined, so there's no set monetary amount or set number, but there are some guidelines. Uh, it must be amount of trade that's sufficient to sh ensure a continuous flow of international trade between the U.S. and the treaty country. And the definition of international is just the foreign person who owns it, really. Yeah, it, it very much can be, yes. And yes. It, it can't be based on a single transaction. Um, there should be continuous flow. Um, but the, the volume of exchange is pr the primary focus. So even if you have relatively small amounts, and we've definitely done some of these, where it, it's not you know millions of dollars of trade between the U.S. and the foreign country, it may be much smaller for a much smaller entity, and that will be taken into consideration, and those can still be approved. Um, more, of, more than half of the total amount of international trade, so you don't include domestic trade, but of the international trade conducted has to be between the U.S. and the treaty country. And, of course, the person applying for the E-1 either has to be coming to carry on the trade between the U.S. and the treaty country, or the person has to be coming um, as a key employee of the company, such as an executive, a supervisor, or an employee with essential skills. Um, and I'll, maybe, Anna, if you can talk a little bit about E-2, you'll see there's a lot of similarity there. There is a lot of similarity, you're right. Um, so to contrast, E-2 category is reserved, as you said, for treaty investors. And to qualify, they must make a substantial investment in a U.S. business. Again, you know, as you already mentioned, substantial is not defined. Basically, it will depend on the type of business. 
So what is substantial amount and substantial investment in one type of business is not necessarily substantial for a different type of business. And um, this, again, you know, if you, to open your business, you just need one room and uh, a, a desk, then, you know, substantial investment into your business may require a much smaller uh, initial amount than to uh, open a warehouse where you're um, making some kind of production. So again, substantial in relationship to the total cost of either purchasing an established enterprise or creating the type of enterprise under consideration. And also, you need to make sure that uh, it is su sufficient to ensure that you um, your fin financial commitment uh, will be su uh, will result in a success successful operation of your proposed enterprise, um, and it should also be of a magnitude to support the likelihood that the treaty investor will successfully develop and direct the enterprise. So, business plan is very important, mm -hmm. and a business plan that is real. So, remember when you put it on paper, it has to make sense. Um, the person applying for the E2 can either be the actual investor, uh, come in to develop and direct the operations, or just like what Joel just described, like the E1, it can be an executive supervisor or essential skills, skills employee. Um, so uh, for both E1 and E2, the company sponsoring the E1 or E2 worker must be at least 50% owned by nationals of the treaty country. And when you are looking uh, at the uh, investment um, that the uh, potential employee or E1, e e I'm sorry, E2 applicant is going to make, if he or she is the only beneficiary in this case, so the rule of thumb is probably they should uh, probably have a vote and share, uh, maybe uh, a little over 50%. That's how we typically look at the uh, cases for our clients. Um, E1 and E2 visas are issued for up to five years uh, normally, and the foreign national will generally be admitted for two years at a time. There is no maximum number of times the E1 or E2 visa or status may be extended, which is very similar to something, the situation that we have with TN that we already discussed. Okay, and then of course the spouse and children are admitted as spouses and dependents, and they can apply only the spouse can apply for the EAD not the children okay so next we go so we've done the TN we have done the E1 E2 treaty trader treaty investor now we're moving on to something called the P visa classification for artists athletes entertainers etc um, or in the case of P3 that's the P1 and then for the P P1 and P2 and then P3 is for the culturally unique artists and entrepreneurs so P1 is reserved for internationally recognized athletes who are coming to the U.S. either individually or as a member of a team or a group to perform at a specific athletic performance, which requires international recognition but does not need to be in a professional league. Amateur leagues are allowed. Or the person can be an entertainer who is coming to the U.S. to provide an integral and essential part of a performance as part of the entertainment group which they have been affiliated for at least one year, which means 75% of the group should have been affiliated with each other and which is recognized internationally as outstanding. And so no one particular person needs to be considered outstanding, but more like the group as a whole. <coughs> On the other hand, so that was P1, the P1 category. The P2 is for an artist and entertainer 
who is coming to the United States either as an individual or as part of a group to perform in some type of a reciprocal exchange program between one or more U.S. and foreign counterpart organizations. And this category is very rarely used because of the extremely limited eligibility criteria. So it has to almost be like a country-to-country exchange program. And, That's correct. Yeah. And they don't usually hire us, so it's not applicable for most of the people on this conference call because most of us are private companies or private organizations. Now, the third one, which a lot of people do use, is the P3 which is for a culturally unique artist and entertainer so that if, for example, even if you're from a particular country, let's say you're from India or China or some country, and there's a specific kind of the Chinese opera, the ballet, the Indian Bharatanatyam classical dancers that we have, for example, Kuchupudi dancers, we've actually done a fair number of P3 uh, pro, you know, and, and obtained approvals for them. But let me have Anna go over and explain the criteria. Sure. By far, P3, as you, Sheila, just said, is the most commonly used category out of all the P uh, classifications. So what are the classification requirements? It could be used for individuals or groups. So you can have a group that's coming here to perform or to teach, uh, or you can have just one person. In both cases, you will use the same form, but for uh, different people or individual people in the, within the group, you will have different attachments to the same form. And as um, Sheila already mentioned, it has to be culturally unique artists or entertainers. So in the uh, uh, language used by the regulation, uh, culturally unique is defined as a style or uh, artistic expression, methodology, or medium, which is unique to a particular country, nation, society, class, ethnicity, religion, tribe, or other group of persons, which gives you a wide range of possibilities. So it doesn't have to be a culturally unique with regard to a specific country. It could be a fusion. It could be a group that uh, performs uh, based on kind of a fusion art. It could be a combination of different countries, different and we've nations. Done that. I think we've done, we've done that. We've yeah, done that. We've done that. And um, peace three activities can be commercial or non-commercial, which means that they may ha- have to uh, perform, or they they can perform um, uh, and. Uh, for they profit. can for it, profit or or not. It, it they could, could be invited by a nonprofit or by a profit organization. They have to have a petitioner who is often an employer, but it could also be a sponsoring organization. The rules for a sponsoring organization are somewhat complicated, but basically, sponsoring organization would have to have contracts with each individual employer, and they would be the entity that would be filing the I one twenty nine form. The beneficiary it will be considered to be an employee, uh, uh, and even if it's a performance um, for a group, all entertainers within the group must be listed and specifically with their individual information because that's how they're going to be applying for their visas. Um, I also wanted to mention that uh, the employer or the sponsoring organization does not have to be in the same field in which the group or the invited uh, performer is going to be 
uh, performing, uh, and, and this is not the same field. Right, and so we, a temple could do it, a, it, a non yeah, and or even a company, a, a technology we did company. Have, yeah, we did process. have a couple of mm -hmm. uh, clients who are company clients, and they invited a group of performers from India. And that was something that they did on the side of their business. And normally, they operate as uh, an IT consulting company. Nevertheless, they did petition for a P3 group. And being in a different field did not prevent from getting an approval for, for that particular case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know although we don't do a huge number of the P1, there's a lot of athletes, international athletes. Mm -hmm. There are some uh, uh, law firms and legal teams, particularly, I guess, in the East Coast, on the West Coast, a lot of them and, and others that who do for the entertainers and for the athletes that do like lots of the ball players, the footballs, the coaches, the volleyball, the baseball, uh, football, all of those players. Um, we have a bunch, a few, I think, initially, but it's not a huge volume. What about the P3S for essential support personnel? Yeah, so th that is a, the companion classification. You'll often use that in conjunction with a P3 petition when you want to bring in um, support personnel for that group. Um, I just want to call a couple of real other quick points on the, the P category. Um, employee doesn't need to be, as John had mentioned, does, they don't have to be in the field of the uh, endeavor. Another uh, thing to keep in mind is that the purpose of the admission has to be limited to a specific competition, an event, or a performance. Um, but an event can include an entire season of performances. So we've had a dance troupe coming in and they have, they may be performing, you know, four months, maybe at the same place, maybe they're traveling across the country, and we would indicate that in the petition, but that can all be done in one in one petition, um, as long as the, the activities um, can also be considered uh, part of the event, and the related activities. So as, as sort of alluded to, your period of admission, for example, for the P1, for an individual athlete, can be up to five years. Uh, a P1 for a team or a group, uh, you know, which is on a P2 as similarly, and a P3 is the time that it takes for the event, but no more than one year. So each of them have their own separate time spans and extensions for P1 individual athletes in five-year increments up to 10 years maximum stay, while the extension for the other categories is to complete the event, but in one-year increments with a grace period of up to 10 days before and after the start day of the program so you can set it up before the actual program So it gives event. them a substantial amount of time to complete whatever activity they're invited. Uh, right. And so, for. of course, you need to get something called consultation, whether the particular foreign nationals' skills are considered culturally unique, whether the events are cultural in nature, whether the events are appropriate for the P3 classification. Um, you could, we actually get different kind of consultation letters from organizations which say there's no conflict with them. In P, with P1s, the, the, gr the group for the foreign national, the, al the alien or the foreign national, um, at the achievements in the field of endeavor, whether the foreign national or group is considered internationally recognized, and whether the services to be performed are appropriate for the requested classification, all those, you would end up getting some kind of a uh, consultation letter for that purpose. So we've done TN, we've done E1, E2, we've done the P1, P2, and P3. Next, we go to the O visa, which is generally, I use the term O because it's the alphabet soup, and O usually stands for outstanding. So it's the category reserved for individuals who are considered an ec of extraordinary ability, either in the sciences, education, business, or athletics, which is the O1A, 
and it does not include the arts, the motion pictures, or the television industry because the O1B is meant for individuals with extraordinary ability in the arts or extraordinary achievement in motion picture or television industry. Basically, we want the best and brightest from all over the world to come and stay in the U.S. temporarily that's, and then permanently right. for the green card. So I know, Anna, you do a lot of O-1 petitions and work on them directly. Do you want to share a little bit more? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We do both O-1As and O-1Bs. What's interesting uh, there is that even though both of the subcategories use the uh, words extraordinary ability, they actually it means different thing for O1A and O1B. Extraordinary ability in the fields of science, education, business, or athletic means a level of expertise indicating that the person is one of the small percentage who's risen to the very top of the field of endeavor. Basically, extraordinary ability is uh, something that will place you at the very top of your field. And that's what you have to show for the O1A classification. However, for the O1B classification, again, that's for people in the arts or extraordinary achievement in motion picture or television industry. Uh, the extraordinary ability requirement means distinction. So it's probably a, a little bit a, a level, you know, uh, the requirement uh, of a lower level. Distinction means a high level of achievement in, in the field. Basically, you want to show that you stand out um, and your your peers, normally what would be required is a level lower, but you stand out from your peers in your field of endeavor. And that's basically what you have to show. So important distinction, extraordinary ability for O1A and O1B can mean two different things. Okay, and what about for those who accompany the O1A providing assistance? Well, so the O2 is is precisely for that. Those are going to be the essential, or well, for O1A, those are people that are an integral part of the O1A specific event. The, that would be that type of O2, or the O2 could be for O1Bs, which are going to be people who are essential. Um, it should be noted that the O2 classification is limited to four nationals who will actually be accompanying the O1 principles in the field of arts or athletics. So um, depending on the category, you, you will see that the O2 category is sometimes, sometimes not. Um, uh, just a couple more notes about the O1 petition. It needs to be accompanied by a written advisory opinion, uh, such as a consultation from a peer group or a labor, or labor organization, um, unless such a group doesn't exist, in which case you can uh, decision will be made on the evidence in the record. Um, if such a written record, written uh, consultation opinion is provided within the last two years, an extension petition may be requested. Uh, they can request a waiver of the consultation requirement by providing a copy of the previously issued letter. Um, also, the Owen classification request may be based on a single or multiple um, offers of employment. So if you're, say, an actor coming to perform on a play and then they also have a, a film part that they're going to be working on at the same time, uh, that can be done. Um, and the petitioner can be the actual employer or a qualified agent. Um, typically, the agent's only going to be used if it's in, the in, in an industry where agents are typically used, so such as entertainment industry. If you're coming here to work at, uh, arguing you're an O1 for, let's say, extraordinary ability in the in, uh, as a scientist or in the business, you're probably not going to be using an agent. Um, and the approval of the petition can be for up to three years uh, with extensions and one-year increments uh, for uh, the unlimited dur duration. And it's a very good category for those people who are subject to the J-1 two-year home residency requirement 
because um, this is the type of uh, class non-immigrant classification that you can still be eligible for even while you are still subject to the two-year home residence requirement, and you can potentially extend it for an indefinite period of time while working on your J-1 waiver. And the reason that we're mentioning it is because the statute clearly says that you are not eligible to change from the J-1 with the two-year home residency requirement to, ex for example, an H-1B because that would be a violation of the law and hence that's why the O-1 becomes much more. And apply for a visa. Yeah, you, you can, can apply for an O-1 visa. You can apply for the O visa, travel abroad, get the visa, come back and just right. keep on doing that. But ultimately at some point you're going to have to get either the waiver or stay abroad for two years if you're subject to the two-year home residency requirement. Maybe we're getting a little in the weeds, a little too complicated for a technology group, but we'll do one last one before we kind of try to wrap up. I think we have just the last one. No, we have two. We have we last one or two, I think, that we would like to touch briefly upon. Uh, the one is the first one is the J-1 International Exchange Visitor Program, which was developed to implement the M Mutual Educational and Cultural, Cultural Exchange Act, also called the Fulbright-Hayes Act of 1961. And so there are several principal parties. Many of you may have heard of J-1s and some companies and some sort of large organizations try to create their own J-1 programs. Universities tend to do that all the time. But you have a Department of State, the U.S. Department of State, which issues the J-visas to exchange visitors and their dependents or designates exchange visitor program sponsors and it creates and administers the federal regulations and policies governing the exchange visitor program. And the second, you have the exchange visitor program sponsors, which are the legal entities that have applied for and received designation from the U.S. Department of State to conduct an exchange visitor program. And also, they have to be enrolled in CVIS, which is very similar to what the universities enrolling in the CVIS. And lots of universities, by the way, may, most of them actually have a J-1 program as well. So the exchange visitor program sponsor either directly offers the program in which the exchange visitor will participate, or they end up placing the exchange visitor in an appropriate program, depending on the scope of the program uh, sponsor's designation. And I know we have also responsible officers and other parties, which we'll try to touch briefly. I know we try to watch the time. We're about 30 minutes now, and we usually try to wrap up between 30 to 45 minutes for most of our calls. So I think we'll be definitely done in the next 15 minutes if you can hang in there and be patient, which is one of the reasons I always tell people it's a 30 to 45-minute phone call, uh, conference call. Yes, um, sure, Sheila. You you started describing all of the players in this kind of J one exchange visitor category program, and there are lots of players on this J one chessboard. And I I'm I'm going to try to uh, put it in a kind of simpler perspective because you don't need to probably memorize all of the parties, uh, but what you need to understand is that if you would like to participate in a J-1 uh, exchange program, and we're going to talk about different types of classifications that you can sponsor. You, especially if you are a smaller company, you don't have to be acting as uh, a sponsor. You can only be acting as an employer. So there are some entities, as uh, Sheila just described, that are uh, basically licensed 
or designated by the Department of State to administer the program, and there are professional agencies that do just that. So if you are a smaller company, you may affiliate with one of those sponsors so that you don't have to actually administer your own program and uh, have uh, get access or enrolled in CVIS and do all that. And But if you do do that, then there are uh, a couple of type, uh, types of positions that your company will have to create. They are responsible officers and alternate responsible officers. If you think about what they do exactly, their job um, duties are essentially uh, very similar to what DSOs or designated school officials do with regard to the F1 program, those uh, students who can work for you on OPT and CPT. But responsible offices and alternate responsible offices are people who are also working uh, just like DSOs with CVIS, but they administer the J-1 program. And again, if you have a smaller company, you don't have to have people um, designated as ROs or AROs, responsible offices or alternate responsible offices within your organization because you can affiliate with a sponsor who will have those people. Uh, on staff for you. And um, also just to continue with the terminology, uh, we have ICE and SCVP. Uh, basically, that's part of the Depo Department of Homeland Security because they manage CVIS. This is the tracking system for your J-1 exchange visitors. And um, uh, they also have CVIS help desk, which is helping um, responsible offices and alternate responsible offices, all of the parties involved to make sense of this uh, complicated program. Sure. And so you have really so many different categories. Many of you may have heard of on the news all the time about the research scholars, students, the ones that we are going to focus a little bit more on, the trainees and interns, because they're really, really common. But you also have teachers, J-1 exchange program teachers. You have au pairs <laughs> coming to help take care of children, camp counselors, government visitors, summer work travel uh, folks, the international visitors, physicians, G1 physicians. So I'm going to have Joel just describe a little bit and then Anna describe the J1 trainee uh, program a little bit and then Joel maybe the, the, the Anna the J1 intern maybe program and Joel the trainee requirements. Well, I, I think I'm just going to start with a real brief understanding of the the purpose of a lot of this program is the U.S. recognizes that a lot of foreign nationals want to gain experience here and then, uh, you know, be able to advance their careers and, and their opportunities in their home country. So it's called the J-1 Exchange Visitor, the idea being that you're coming here to learn about the culture or learn a skill or learn, you know, a variety of, uh, of, of different types of, of uh, knowledge that you can get in the U.S. and then bringing that back to your, your home country. Um, that's not all the way, ways that, that that's not the only way this ends up playing out, but it, that's kind of why, why the program was created the way it was. Um, so people that come here to study on F1 or they work on H1, some of them greatly b benefit from also or instead uh, participating in the J1 exchange program as an intern or a trainee. So maybe, Anna, if you want to discuss that a little bit. Uh, sure. So both J1 trainee and intern a program requires that the company who is hosting this uh, trainee or intern has a bona fide training or internship program. And if your company doesn't have it, 
it does not have to be in place at this point in time. If you're looking to sponsor a trainee or intern, you can start creating this program. And the program uh, can apply. But there's a lot of paperwork involved because you have to deal with the Department of State in setting it up. So right, if I'm a small technology company, I couldn't just have that. You could uh, affiliate with one of the sponsors. So those professional organizations that I um, mentioned before, uh, just a few minutes earlier. And so you would you would have to fill out a form but you wouldn't have to be designated as a program spo sponsor okay. uh, yourself. So yeah, yeah, it's possible. And we, um, we have had clients who actually did that. And um, the program is uh, designed to accommodate a, a large variety of fields. That could be information, media, and technology, management, business, commerce, and finance, science, engineering, architecture, mathematics, and industrial occupations public administration law, arts and culture, tourism and social sciences, library science, and so on and so forth. So th there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of uh, positions uh, in which you can train uh, somebody to, uh, as a J-1 exchange trainee or intern. Okay, so let's just go to the uh, next one because we have about five minutes to wrap up religious worker program. Um, but did you wanna add anything else, Anna? No, I, I think, uh, well, we can talk about a lot of other requirements. I think what's important for, uh, for you to take away uh, from today is that it is possible even a smaller company can uh, administer a program. And if you have any questions whatsoever about uh, any of the requirements, we have uh, handled these cases. So we would welcome any questions about uh, either trainee or intern requirements for J-1 exchange program. Okay, so let's go to the last category that we briefly wanted to touch upon, which is the R-1 religious worker. And you may say, well, why do I care? It's a religious worker. Well, it can be used b not just by ministers, but also by what's called a religious worker. So for obviously, if you're a minister, the person must be an authorized and trained to conduct religious worship and perform other duties, usually performed by the clergy of that religion. Um, for a religious worker, the person must be a member of that religion for at least the past two years, must be coming to perform a religious job in either as a professional or in a non-professional capacity, and the work must primarily be related to traditional religious function for example, in the traditional sense, an R1 cannot be used for the by for the person to perform administrative or support functions such as, you know, a fundraiser or as a clerical employee, but you could do certain other things, like for example, maybe being a caregiver, a nun, et cetera. But again, there are restrictions and it's always a gray area. Joel and Joanna, do you want to touch upon this briefly? Yeah, so um there there's there are some gray areas here. Um clearly again, fundraiser uh the, some of these uh, positions are clearly specified as not being uh qualifying. Um a number of years ago, CIS did indicate that potentially you could come as a there were nuns working as nurses um and there they they basically indicated that yes, it is potentially possible that that would be permitted. So there is some lee uh, some leeway, some some wiggle room there. But there's you know if you're coming here uh, strictly to do activities that are clearly not religious in nature, but just something if you're going to you know the the maintenance guy at the church, um, that's not going to be considered a religious worker. That's 
uh, just a, a, a job that they, they're going to need to hire for otherwise. Must it be sponsored by a nonprofit religious organization in the U.S.? Yeah, so it, okay. it does have to be nonprofit. A, a nonprofit religious organization is the only organization that's going to be able to be the sponsor for that. And What about the site visits? Um, so the site visits, anytime you're doing an R1, the first time you're doing it, you're going to have a site visit. This is not like H-1B where there's random site visits um, and that you may or may not be visited. They won't approve it until there's an FDNS visit at your location. Um, and that's because there was so much fraud and abuse with yes. this category. And how long is the process for Anna? Um, you the, mean the, the, the process the, or the depending or the eligibility. Um, the uh, R1 status is available for up to five years initially. Um, and uh, you, you know, it, you unless uh, residing abroad and physically present outside of the U.S. for one year, and then you can repeat the uh, the eligibility period again. You can be here for five years, then abroad for one year, and then come back for five years. Similar to H-1B, six years in the U.S., one year abroad, and then you can repeat the same eligibility cycle. Sure. Uh, and R1s. Um, their family members are eligible for R2 status uh, for spouses and children, but unfortunately, they don't, they're not eligible for any employment authorization. Sure. So as just to, just to touch very briefly, because I know generally whenever we as companies, as employers think about bringing in employees, we think of the H-1B, which is, of course, having its own serious challenges today with all the crazy RFEs and generally with the quota and the selection and the lottery and all of that. Then you have the L-1s, which are also being heavily scrutinized both by Congress and by the Trump administration. And then you have these F-1 CPTs and OPTs. So those are the traditional. Today, we talked a little bit for you about the TN, the trade NAFTA for Canadians, the E1, E2 for treaty traders, treaty investors, the P1, P2, and P3 for either you know well-known athletes, artists, entertainers, or culturally unique people that you want to bring to this country and like even you as a company can sponsor them. Then, of course, the J, the O1, which we talked about because we do quite a few of those, the J1 Exchange Visitor Program, which a lot of universities and other employers routinely get involved and do that because they're available for so many different uh, categories and there's age restrictions for some of them. Medical doctors, for example, might come with restrictions of the two-year home residency requirement, but not all J-1s are subject to the two-year home residency requirement. And then finally, we talked about the R-1 religious workers. So the the, the crux of the story or the moral for, of the story from today's telephone con uh, teleconference, hopefully, is that if you're an employer or an employee, you don't want to think that, oh, my God, you know, they, they're not eligible for the age finished. I might as well just throw in the towel. I'm, our reason for doing the conference today was to say, don't panic. Be open and creative. Do your research. Consult with your uh, immigration attorney to determine if there are other possible options for your company, for your individual, based on their background, circumstances, work, etc. And, of course, we at the Multi Law Firm are happy to discuss these options with you, consult with you if you choose to do that, and with your employees regarding any of these or other options that may be viable and applicable based on their particular circumstance. Uh, so on behalf of Anna Stepanova, Joel Yanovich, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm staff, we thank you very much for joining us today. And we want to take this opportunity to wish you and your loved ones a very happy holiday season and best wishes for the coming new year. Can't believe another year just flew by. Thank you so much. See you all soon. Bye-bye.